This morning we're going to jump into uh, the book of Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, in the last song uh, that was sung about uh, make me brave, um, give me faith, God, to step out for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, it really could be uh, the title of, of this message, so that song certainly, uh, certainly was appropriate. And as we look into chapter 1 of, of Nehemiah, I want us to, again, just sort of, um, I want to remind us maybe of what I said last week about how the sovereignty of God over all things, the prayer of confession and repentance, and the willingness to step out in faith, so often seem to work together to accomplish the will of God. And I also want to remind us that this is a story of kind of real-life people, um, similar or not unlike you and me. I think if we forget that, we have a tendency to distance ourselves from the story and kind of say, well, that was great, but I don't know how it applies to me. Nehemiah and his friends and those who came to talk with him were ordinary people. But I must admit that I often am curious about, and this is about many men and women who are mentioned and des described in the Bible, they are often described without really letting us know much about who they were. And so I sometimes wish we knew a bit more about them. What were they like? What were their struggles? Were they quiet, introspective people? Or were they driven type A personalities? Were they actually born leaders? Or did God at times call them to lead even though their natural tendency might have been to avoid leadership. But the Bible doesn't talk very much about those aspects of the people that are inside the Bible. But I must admit I'm curious about that. What would Nehemiah have been like to meet, to talk to? And those small little delegation of people that traveled all the way from Jerusalem to see Nehemiah which is about 800 miles away. What kind of people were they? What we do know about Nehemiah was that he was one of many exiled Jewish people, likely born into captivity, who had chosen to remain where he was rather than return to his homeland even though it would appear that that freedom was given within the Persian Empire for those who wanted to return, could do so. We do know that Nehemiah was obviously a very trustworthy man, a man likely of character and integrity, a man who those qualities about his life obviously caught the attention of the king of Persia, who had appointed Nehemiah as his personal, and you might call royal, cupbearer. 
That's about all we know about Nehemiah. And I want to suggest this morning that Nehemiah likely never suspected that this role that he had within the palace of Susa, cupbearer to the king, was going to change not only his life, but the life of a nation. I don't know very much about the role of a cupbearer, but I did find this information, so these are not my words. These are words I found on where we all go to find things. (laughs) Google. An officer of high rank. It's what a cupbearer, who he was, what he did. At ancient oriental courts, whose duty it was to serve the wine at the king's table. On account of the constant fear of plots and intrigues, a person must be regarded as thoroughly trustworthy to hold this position. He must guard against poison in the king's cup and was sometimes required to swallow some of the wine before serving it. His confidential relations with the king. When I think about that role, that phrase probably says more than anything else. His confidential relations with the king often endeared him to his sovereign and also gave him a position of great influence. Someone else uh, kind of paraphrased that in uh, slightly more colloquial terms. A cupbearer was a glorified guinea pig for any beverage served to the king. For this reason, cupbearers were often among the king's most trusted servants. That was Nehemiah's job. Nehemiah, an exiled Israelite, had likely settled into a fairly good life in the king's palace. He had a position of importance. Maybe he had a position of some entitlement. We might say today that he had found himself a very lucrative government job with all the perks that went with it. And I wonder, maybe that's why Nehemiah didn't consider himself returning to Jerusalem that he might not have seen that as a possibility or certainly necessarily not a good career move. We tend to look at Nehemiah as a man of God, as a man who accomplished much for God and for his people, but as I read this chapter, it strikes me that that may not be where or how Nehemiah started. While fulfilling his role as cupbearer to the king, was Nehemiah also remaining faithful to the one true and living God? We actually don't know. We're not given any kind of personal history or background. He's not described as a man of God or a man who feared God, or a man who followed after God. So perhaps he was simply a good, honest, trustworthy man who was enjoying the good life. 
But it was a life that was about to be shaken. And what I find very interesting, it had nothing to do with his own initiative. A delegation arrives from Jerusalem to Susa, as I said, about 800 miles, a long journey, likely would have taken at least a month or more. And while we often think about Nehemiah as sort of the man of the hour, I think we should not underestimate the significance of this small delegation of people. He says a man named Hanani and a group of unnamed people who were troubled by what they saw in their city and did something about it. And yesterday when I was reading this over, it kind of jumped out at me about, would I be able to say that about where I live? Troubled by what they saw in their city and did something about it. That it's through these anonymous individuals that God began to stir in Nehemiah's heart a reminder, I believe, of who he was and who he was called to serve. Ultimately, this story is about God accomplishing his purposes, but it should be noted that what stirred Nehemiah's heart started with a group of people whose names, other than Hanani, we do not know. Yet they were about to set in motion something that would unfold likely far beyond their wildest dreams. In a sense, as I read this chapter and I read Nehemiah's prayer, to me it has almost what we might call a conversion quality to it. That very suddenly... In a short conversation, Nehemiah is called to examine his own life. And he may very well say, have said, you know what, I have been focusing on serving the king of Persia. And I have quite literally turned my back on the God of heaven and earth. And I sometimes wonder, when I think about this unnamed Delegation. Who is it in your life and maybe in my life who has caused me to consider faith or perhaps return to faith? It's often the unnamed, the inconspicuous, the quietly faithful through whom God chooses to work, and I believe that is true within the church today. We need to be reminded that God has not chosen the wise, he's not chosen the powerful, he's not chosen the rich. He has chosen humble people, people who may be well aware of their own weakness, and yet in our weakness, God reveals his strength and accomplishes his purposes. And I want to say this morning... Don't underestimate what God can do through a willing servant like you. 
So this delegation arrives in Susa, and maybe, I think the Bible calls Hananiah a brother. Now, I'm not sure if that's a literal brother of Nehemiah or whether it's just a phrase. If he's a brother, he obviously has some family connections. But anyway, they have a meeting with Nehemiah, and almost as a matter of polite social conversation, Nehemiah asks, so, how are they getting along? I asked, the Jews who returned to Jerusalem from their exile here. In a way, it's not unlike the question I get asked at Starbucks every morning. So, how's your day going so far? I'm not really sure how much they care about that, especially when it may be 6.30 or 7 in the morning, but I'm sure it's clearly laid out in the training manual. Ask people, so how's your day going so far? There's a quality to that question that Nehemiah asked that just seems like a polite thing to ask. But if Nehemiah was expecting the standard, well, things are okay or not too good, that was not the response that he heard because they said to me, they said to Nehemiah, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah's response is not, I'm sorry to hear that, that's too bad. Both of which we might say would have been kind of reasonable responses. Instead, Nehemiah is brought to tears and he's driven to pray. It becomes what I believe, and this is like a moment Terry conversation, that conversation becomes a pivotal moment in Nehemiah's life. And as I think about that, and I think about conversations that you and I might occasionally have with people, if we are willing to step up and speak about God and the goodness of God, it can be a pivotal moment in someone else's life. This is what Nehemiah says. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands... Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we, and he's talking about the nation, have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family. And I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us. Through your servant Moses. It is kind of a no excuses kind of prayer of confession and repentance. Nehemiah admitting as a nation and as a man. God I have forgotten you. 
And then the prayer goes on. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. That if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. That's exactly what the people of Israel had experienced for a long, long time. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. And as I thought about that line, I think no matter what happens, no matter how bad the destruction, there always seems to be a remnant of people who hang on to faith in God. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. So while this is a prayer of confession and repentance on behalf of the whole nation, I believe it's first and foremost a personal prayer of Nehemiah to God. And that God, through these unnamed travelers, is drawing Nehemiah back to faith. And through a handful of travelers who had a burden for their city, and through a man called Nehemiah who humbles himself in prayer before God, and through a foreign king, God is going to accomplish a great thing. As Nehemiah prays, he's reminded of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. To me, it has the feel of many of David's psalms when he sort of Ask God a lot of questions about why is life like this? Why are the evil seeming to prosper? He always ends by declaring the faithfulness and love of God. As I read that prayer, it almost seems as if Nehemiah feels he needs to remind God of what God has promised. When actually it is God reminding Nehemiah of the promises they have forsaken. There's a fervency about Nehemiah's prayer, and I think that's perhaps he knows that his prayer is very likely going to involve a call to do something. At a physical level, we know it's going to involve a construction project and all the planning that that will require. On a spiritual level, it's going to involve the willingness to risk for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if you ask, what is he risking? I would say at the very least, he's risking his job. He's risking his comfortable life. He's risking the relationship, and perhaps it's a close relationship he had with the king of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah had a lot to lose. And at the very worst, it could cost him his life. And Nehemiah is afraid. 
I like that it says that it does not say Nehemiah was bold and brave. It says he's afraid. Nehemiah's prayer is about to be accompanied by a big ask. He's about to ask the king for permission to rebuild the walls of a conquered nation. It's a request that has potential threat written all over it, and Nehemiah, I think, is well aware of that. And maybe that's why he waits, as I read this, it sounds like he waits for four months before actually asking the king. And I thought about that. Why, why are you waiting for four months? Maybe Nehemiah was hoping God would do something on his own. That the sovereign hand of God would simply step in and make things right. He said, I prayed and fasted for several days. I've mulled it over for four months. So God, now you need to do something. And yet I believe God, during those four months is quietly saying to Nehemiah, I'm waiting for you to step out. So Nehemiah approaches the king, not with confidence, but with fear and trepidation, because he has no idea how it might turn out. God has not given at least we don't read this, God has not given Nehemiah a vision or a dream or an audible word or some guarantee that this will all work out well. Nehemiah is literally stepping out in faith. We sometimes read the Bible and think of its characters as somehow super people or out of the ordinary people. We need to think about them as ordinary people who have made a stand to be the people of God and are willing to step out in faith for the sake of the kingdom. And in response, God, in his sovereignty, acts in marvelous ways. And as we read this conversation between Nehemiah and the king, I want to say it moves from uncertainty and fear to boldness and even confidence, not because Nehemiah musters up some courage of his own, but because Nehemiah realizes that God has actually prepared the way, that God has gone ahead. And as the conversation with the king continues, Nehemiah, I believe, begins to rest in the sovereignty of God, that God has gone before him. And I'm simply going to read this conversation. It's, I think it's quite an amazing conversation. I should have put verse 1 in there, but I didn't. Um, it talks about the month, I believe, in verse 1 of Kislev, which I believe is, 
either October, November, or November, December by our calendar. And in verse 2, it says, early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence, so the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. The response of Nehemiah in the next verse, it says, Then I was terrified. But, and I think for Nehemiah, this is like a moment in his life where he simply says, God, I'm going in. I'm stepping out. And I replied, long live the king. Good place to start. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king asked, well, how can I help you? That response to Nehemiah must have sounded like God has just opened up the door. And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. So I'm assuming this is a prayer that nobody else heard, that Nehemiah just quietly prayed. If it pleased the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, So how long will you be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. And I believe as Nehemiah is talking to the king, and the king is responding to Nehemiah, Nehemiah knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has gone before him. And I believe he becomes a bit bolder. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, which would put us into the territory of Iraq and Jordan, that area of the Middle East, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please... Give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. The next line, to me, is so critical in how we see God working. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was upon me. And when I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had also sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. So he's got a bit of a military escort. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. 
those characters are going to resurface about maybe almost 10 times in Nehemiah to challenge that which Nehemiah has been told by God to do. So it's, I see it as almost a reminder that when the power of God begins to work, wherever that may be, you can rest assured that there will be opposition. And we'll read of that later. But as I end, I want to return to what I said in the beginning, that the sovereign hand of God, so evident in this story, the humble prayers of his people, of Nehemiah, and the willingness to step out and act, do something for the kingdom of God, so often seem to be present in the mysterious ways that God accomplishes his purposes. And that we, too, sitting here within Creekside Church, have a part to play in the work of God. That those three things represent God's work even within Creekside Church, that the sovereign hand of God is active in this place. That we are called as a church to pray. Pray for our church and pray for our community. And I believe we are called to step out and be active. Not only within our church, but within our community. I have to admit that I need to be willing and I probably already do wrestle with that fact. That if I pray for Lake Country, God may very well challenge me to step out and do something for his glory, for his church, for his kingdom. Will I be willing to act on what God is speaking into my heart and into my life? I believe that if I do, if we do, that God is able to show us great and mighty things. That God can still change the direction of people's lives simply because you and I were willing to step out and risk something for the kingdom of God. Maybe it's only a conversation with somebody that we know we need to have a conversation with and we finally say, God, I'm going to do it. I believe that God will already be ahead of you. Nehemiah experienced that truth even though he started from a place where I think he was separated from God. And even when he found renewed faith, he still experienced fear and uncertainty before stepping out in faith. And I think every one of us can identify with that. But in spite of that, Nehemiah stepped out in faith. And as he did, he experienced in a very practical, I want to say in probably unexpected ways, he experienced the faithfulness of God. It's my prayer that we allow this story. Story of a man who was kind of pretty much enjoying likely a pretty good life. That God interrupted his life and accomplished incredible things.
I pray that a little bit of that story God would breathe into your life and into my life um, as we consider what it is that God would have for us as a church within this community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story. And Father, it is a, a, a story of events in the course of human history. It's a story of um, people. Uh, and yet, God, when I think about it, I'm always drawn to that delegation who we don't even know who they are. that looked at their city and were troubled by what they saw. Father, I pray by your spirit you would breathe that into our lives as your children here in Creekside Church. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.